All right, well, a number of years ago, a retired NASA engineer wrote a book uh, titled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. <laughs> this book, which he self-published, uh, <laughs> placed the expectation of the rapture between September 11th and September 13th of 1988, and it became a massive bestseller. He sold, by the time that that came out, he sold over four and a half million copies of this book about the rapture in 1988. He said, only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. <laughs> and I say that to every preacher in town, I would stake my life on Rosh Hashanah, which is 1988, which is the Jewish New Year. Uh, and so... Wizenant's later books, predicting the rapture in 1989, 1993, and 1994, didn't do as well as the one in 1988. Funny enough, I mean, it's kind of weird when people question your credibility. Um, but he kept right on making those predictions, uh, despite the clear teaching from Scripture that no one knows when Christ will come back. We are not meant to know when Christ's return will be. Um, but funny enough, the Jewish New Year actually begins tomorrow, September 6th. So the new sermon title to today is 21 Reasons the Rapture Will Be in 2021. Good with that? Reason one, COVID. Reason two, I'm not going to go. <laughs> That's not the real sermon. No, I'm not making that prediction. Uh, when you make those uh, bold claims like that, you're supposed to get stoned when they're not coming to truth. So we're not going to do that. Um, when is the end of the world? You ever wonder that? When is it going to happen? You ever wonder about what's, what's to come, what's in the future? I think we as a society are obsessed about the future. What is the future of education? What is the future of medicine? What is the future of the Baylor Bears. What, what, what? We are obsessed about what's to come. We want to talk about something we know nothing of, and we want to talk about a lot of it. So what is the millennium? What is the rapture? Uh, should we be concerned with this mark of the beast? Um, and really, why do I care about all of this? All of these questions I hope to answer uh, today as we look at eschatology, which is the study of last things, and uh, seems fitting today, since this is the last sermon in our sermon series, Orthodox. Um, it seems fitting that we would talk about last things on our last message. Um, and so the title of today, the actual title of today's sermon is, It's the End of the World as We Know It. And the roadmap for today is very simple. We're going to give you three views, one takeaway. So three views, one takeaway, and so the three views are the three views of the millennium. Now, when you think of when you think of the millennium, do you think of oh, millennials? They're the worst. <laughs> Back up. I'm actually an old millennial. <laughs> Maybe you're not thinking that. Maybe you're like, oh, the Millennium Falcon. I would love to learn more about this clunky old ship. I would love to talk to you more about that. How it goes so fast. Why is it still in existence? But that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about the millennium. What we are talking about when we're referring to the millennium is this big chunk of time, mainly a thousand years. A thousand years. And some have called the millennium the thousand years of peace that Christians can't stop fighting about. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> this is what we do. This is all because of our passage here today. Revelation 20, it's all because of Revelation 20. And in verse 2, uh, verse 2, it says, And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. There's your thousand years. So when is this thousand years is the question. But really, uh, what most people are trying to ask is, when does Christ return in relation to that thousand-year time frame? When is Jesus coming back? Is he coming back before this millennium? Is he coming back after this millennium? And so we're trying to figure out when does Jesus come back? And so we're going to look at the three views of the millennium. There's actually a lot of views. There's a lot of uh, different you know, variations and nuances and hybrids of each of these views. But I'm just going to look at three views uh, for our time here, the three kind of main ones that we have here. Uh, but before doing that, let me just say that there are certain things that are essentials to the faith. There are certain things like the Trinity, like justification, right? Like, like, like our, our, our view of who Jesus is. Like these are, these, are, these are essentials to the faith. If we leave that, if we depart from that, then, then there's questions of whether we've left the faith, right? If we're, if we're like, yeah, it's not really God. Those are, those are, those are essentials. And then there's some non-essentials, and I would put this millennium discussion in that category of a non-essential. Um, there are different views on this that it's okay if you believe. Um, and if you hold to a different view than me, it's okay. I'm happy to be wrong. I'm happy to be proven wrong. I'm happy to change my theology midair, right? No? Okay. <laughs> We're happy to do that. All right. So enough primers. Three views. The first view is pre-millennial. All right, this is going to, feel like a, this is going to feel like a class, and I'm going to try not to do that, but we're going to kind of run through these. Pre-millennial, again, there are different versions of this, but this view says that Christ will come back pre or before that thousand-year reign. And why is that? Because pre-millennials take great pride in themselves of taking the Bible seriously, and, and we respect them for that. And, and for them, what that means is they want to also take it literally and chronologically, so, in chapter 19, the, the chapter right before the one we just read, in chapter 19, we see Jesus actually comes back. There's a second coming, and, he, and he's not coming like the first time he came, because this time he's coming, he's got eyes of fire, he's, he's riding a conquering horse. You know, it, it's, it's a battle, and there's a whole army behind him, and they're going to the Armageddon, the last battle, right? This is the scene. It's the end of the world. Jesus comes back. And so naturally, if that happens in chapter 19, then the millennium in chapter 20 is going to happen after that. So Jesus comes back pre the millennium is the thought here, right? So Satan is bound. Um, there's this obvious Christ come back for the millennium. And there's this chart up here. And <laughs> I thought, let's just try to get as many charts and things like that and make you really confused. Um, we're not going to do that. I'm going to try to keep it simple. Uh, but here's this chart here. Jesus dies on the cross. Um, then some in the camp would say that there's this rapture or the taking up of Christians. This is the Left Behind series uh, where you could be on a full airplane when you left the ground. But when you land that half the plane could be missing because that they were raptured away, um, right? This is, the, this is what we're, we're talking about here. Then there's this period of tribulation or oppression for the church, and then the second advent happens, and then after that is a thousand-year millennium, and then Christ comes back a third time. Makes complete 
You're following at least what, 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 what they're trying to say? And I, I would say I truly respect premillennialists. Um, I, 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 I respect their intention for taking Scripture seriously. However, I would argue that they're confusing literally for seriously, that, it, that if you don't take things literally in the book of Revelation, then you're not taking Scripture seriously. And I would say that we, you can. Um, I don't think just taking it literally means that you're honoring the text more. In fact, there's many times you could be getting it wrong in that sense because the book of Revelation, Daniel, Ezekiel, these are all from a different genre of Scripture called apocalyptic Scriptures, right? Apocalyptic literature. And in apocalyptic literature or the genre, it is just heavy on, a, on these images of the end of the world. It's, it's as if John is writing with a paintbrush and you look at the painting at the end and you go, how can I make literal applications from a paintbrush? It's really, really difficult to do so. Um, and I would say, actually, these folks don't actually believe everything should be held literally um, because in chapter 19, there's a part where it says like the, a giant sword comes out of Jesus's mouth. And they're not claiming that Jesus is pulling out a giant sword from his mouth um, and his eyes weren't actually on fire. They're not claiming that either. Right. Uh, and so th- there is a little bit of that. We, we understand that you can't take everything literally. Um, but then you get into things like the mark of the beast in this camp. What do we do with the mark of the beast? And, and so someone from the pre-millennial camp would say there's actual, an actual mark, right? There's a physical mark. Um, or maybe it's a microchip in your wrist. Have you heard this? Um, actually, last week, a pastor at a very well-known church, uh, Bethlehem, argued that if you get a vaccine, that is the new mark of the beast, that vaccines are the new mark of the beast. And let me just make clear what I, what I think is true. And that's just nonsense. <laughs> if you can get a vaccine, get a vaccine. <laughs> it's loving our neighbors. I don't believe this is a mark of the beast. We, we, <laughs> the mark is metaphorical. The mark is metaphorical. Christians actually in Revelation 14 get a mark themselves. They get a seal, and it's not a physical thing. It's a stamp of approval. It's people who are loyal and, 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 and have approval for what they're, they're holding on to. And for the non-Christian, what that means is to be marked is to belong to something. It means to be, to be owned by that something. That's what the mark of the beast is. And so I think far too many of us are concerned about these external marks of the beast when our own addictions mark us already. And so what about the number 666? It's almost a scary number to say. It almost feels, um, you know, satanic to put it up in our screens and things like this, right? It's, it's in scripture. It's okay, right? The, the, the number 66, what do we do with that? Well, many want to take the numbers and form them into letters, and then you can actually uh, decipher this to become something like the Antichrist is Caesar Nero, or that the Antichrist is Ronald Reagan, or any president who's ever been, who's ever served has been deciphered to be the Antichrist, right? And so this is, this is how this works. Now, there's a, G.K. Chesterton says, and though St. John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. I just love that. I just love that. Uh, let's stop being silly. God's number is the number seven. I think even if uh, a casual uh, Christian would, 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 has heard something like that, that God's number is seven, and those who fall short of that are clearly six. Scripture even says that six is mankind's number. 
Uh, it's emphasizing the creature as opposed to the creator. And so it's incompleteness. And it's said three times to make the emphasis, just like the angels say, holy, 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 to make the emphasis. It's saying it 666, emphasizing the, the distinction between man and our creator or the difference, the chasm there. So besides the emphasis on the literal, that I, I, I struggle with this, this, this view, my other problem with the premillennial view is this. If Christ is going to come back and then all of this stuff happens, Christians are raptured away or taken up, then what's the point of God telling us all of this? Like if we're not going to be here for that because we're raptured away, then what's the point of him telling us this? If, we're, if, if it's, it just almost feels like it's now just an ac- academic exercise, it's just interesting to think about. If we know that half the world is about to disappear and that's our alarm clock to start taking things seriously, it feels like now we can just mess around until that time happens. There, it loses the, the sense of urgency that Jesus talks about here. Um, but these, these next two views, I know I spent too much time on that one, but these next two views... Um, Post-millennial and amillennial actually are very similar in many regards. Um, and so the first view is Christ comes back before the millennium. This, this next view, post-mill, is that he comes back after or post the millennium. That makes sense? If Revelation 19 is describing Christ returning, uh, he's coming on his horse, he's got a tattoo on his legs, and then there's all these birds coming in Revelation 19, which is just, ooh, it's a little little frightening. Verse 17 of chapter 19 says to these birds, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the riders, and the flesh of all men and women. (laughs) Ooh. <laughs> like I said, this is, this is kind of horror movie stuff going on here. And so when you look at that, you read that verse and you're going, okay, so the flesh of everyone. So like everybody, everyone dies. Okay, so then, then it describes the destruction of Satan. And then Satan gets thrown into the lake of fire in chapter 19. And then we get to chapter 20 and you're like, well, who's left if everyone was just tormented and taken away? If all of God's enemies are slain, then who's left for chapter 20? And why is the devil still around anymore? This is another fun thing about the most confusing chapter of the most confusing book in the entire Bible, right? (laughs) So let let me, what I think is uh, is the the key to unlock the most confusing chapter in the confusing book in the entire Bible. Uh, Aren't you glad we're covering this today? (laughs) As our last sermon, not doing like a six-week series. The way the book of Revelation is written is it's telling the end of the world in seven different ways. And so as you read through the whole book of Revelation, you're actually reading the end of the world seven different times in seven different ways. It plays out history until the world hits its end, and then it hits rewind, it goes back, and then like like the the timekeepers, EVA, and they, they, they try to say, Let, let's do it all over again, but let's do it from a different angle. Or maybe you got Dr. Strange in there, and he's like, all right, time stone, let's twist it around, and let's try this from a different angle here. And so you get these multiverses, right, of the same event. It's not the same analogy, but we'll make it work. Chapter 19 ends one way of telling the story, but now we turn the diamond a little bit, and we get to chapter 20, and now we're seeing the end of the world again. All right? It's a recapitulation of the same story. This happens all throughout the book of Revelation. It's the key to understanding the whole book. Uh, it's the story of the end of the world played over and over and over and over and over. Uh, and so the post mill and the third, the post mill 
And, and that third view, the Amil view, actually agree up to this point. But here's where these two views diverge. Uh, the post mill, we have a chart up here as well, um, says there's the cross, then there's this period of time, then there's a thousand years of, of what they might call the golden age uh, here on earth where the church sees this unexpected success uh, and, it, and it Christianizes most of the world. Uh, and then Christ returns and it's very optimistic about a global salvation. Uh, Christians will begin to have greater influence and Christianize the nations and has a very conquering the world mentality about it in the post-mill view. And on one hand, I kind of want to be post-mill. I've told Malcolm this. Like, I, I want to be post-mill because like, I want to be more optimistic about how the, the world's going to go. Like, and so I, 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 I'm very lenient there. I'm, I'm trying, I, I want to go there. But <laughs> my problem with this view is that it just seems to fly in the face of what so many par parts of Scripture say about how things are going to get progressively worse and how we will start hating one another and nations will be rising against nation, right? That Matthew 24 and other places talk a lot about this, that evil will intensify before the end. And so if that's not it, then what is happening? Now we move to the last, the last view, the amill view, amillennialism, uh, which sounds like that this camp doesn't believe in a millennialism. We're against it. We're above millennials. Um, but that's not true. What they hold, and I, I find myself holding, uh, is that at Christ's first coming, something big happens. Something huge happens. When, the when, when Christ goes out into the wilderness and he confronts the devil, and the devil tries to tempt him, and he beats the devil there, and he comes back out, what's the very first thing he says in Mark? In Mark 1, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. I mean, do you hear what he just said? That the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is breaking into this world. Things are not going to be the way they used to be. It's, I'm breaking into this world now. And so amillennialists believe that, as you can see from the chart, that Christ's first advent inaugurates this millennial reign of Christ. And now I think it says up there, this is like a symbolic reign. And I don't think it's symbolic. Uh, it, it's just trying to argue against it. There's not a one world religion and that it's not, we're not Christianizing the whole world. There is, a, there is a literal reign of Christ, but it's Christ in heaven reigning right this very second that he is reigning right now. And I think wherever you're at in the camp, you want to believe that, right? <laughs> we want to believe that, that he is reigning. And so that he is reigning right now. And, and I think that if you look at that, it's really just the simplest view. He, comes, he came once, he leaves, he's reigning, and he's going to come back a second time, right? It, it, it seems to be making that sense. But I think what many of us are going to have questions about is going, Okay, so that makes sense. I understand what you're trying to say, but that doesn't match up to reality. <laughs> like, we're not living in this period of peace and prosperity. That doesn't match our circumstances at all, and I want to affirm that. It doesn't feel like that. Um, and, but I want to ask, what is the picture of this millennium that is being described? Let's go back to Revelation 20, verse 1. It says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. Remember, it's not a literal key. It's not a literal pit. 
and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And so this thousand years, not a literal thousand years, but a symbolic um, picture of a very long time, but a perfect right amount of time, so that God is binding Satan, that ancient dragon, and so that just at the right time, the end of the world will happen. That God is doing it for just the perfect amount of time. And now many will ask, maybe may want to be asking, but how is Satan bound? What does that look like? It doesn't seem very bound. <laughs> he seems very terrible. Uh, it seems like, isn't scripture saying that he's a roaring lion walking around waiting to destroy his enemies, right? Like this binding is actually a binding for a very specific purpose. He isn't dead. He's not, it's not saying he's harmless. It just says that he has limitations, And so the purpose of binding is to limit where Satan can roam. So if you have a dog who is is eating up all of your roses or all of of your garden, and you bind the dog, you put put a, a, a leash on the dog and stake it in the ground so that he can roam in a giant circle everywhere but where your rose bed is, in one sense, the dog is, is, is bound. But in another sense, that the area that he, the dog is free to roam into, he can thrash and tear apart the ground, right? And so it, it is binding in that sense. It's not, it's not a full sense. You might still say, yeah, but it's, <laughs> it, seems really, it seems like the, the days are really evil right now. This doesn't feel like he's bound at all. Are we sure this is the millennium? And I would just say, that makes sense if we're only looking at our time in the world. But let's look back to the days that, that this was written in. Look at the days that were happening right before Jesus came. What were things like then? There, there was only one group of people that were God's people, and that was the Jewish people that knew God. And it wasn't like they could even then have a personal relationship with God. It was only the priest who could interact with God. And then if you look at how dark the times were. If you see when Jesus comes into the scene, it appears like there are just demons everywhere. Like every town he walks into, there's a demon that he's casting out. There's demons everywhere. And then there's this great moment uh, when he, in Luke 10, 17, where Jesus is sending out groups of people to share the gospel. And in verse 17, it says, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons believe, uh, submit to us in your name. In verse 18, he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, <laughs> we'll get to that random phrase in a bit. But <laughs> this is evidence that the kingdom of God has come because even demons are listening to the disciples' commands. That the demons have to listen to you, to, to, to send them out. And, and then Jesus goes, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. And they're like, okay. (laughs) But did you hear the thing about the demons? (laughs) Like, Valak, the defiler, was exercised. We did something about that. Is he just daydreaming? Oh, that was an interesting picture. Like, (laughs) of course not. Somehow there is a link between the ability of the disciples to cast out demons and Satan's demise of what's happening right now, he had some degree of rule and authority before the cross, but now the kingdom of heaven is breaking in so that Satan's rule is falling down to where 
We can cast out demons like the disciples here. Jesus says that when you bind Satan, he says when you bind him, then you plunder him. You plunder that strong man. And I would say, if we look at what God is doing on this earth, he is plundering what the devil has. Like, when that means that he is stealing the souls that the devil thought he had. This is why we believe that we are living in the already but not yet. The kingdom is already here. The the white witch's demise is sure. Like, there are 2.5 billion Christians in this world. 2.5 billion Christians in this world. And they're not all isolated to one continent or one country. They're all over the world. That is plunder. That is plunder. The, the gospel is exploding in Africa and in Latin America. It is exploding. God is, is just plundering the souls that the devil thought he had. And so we can celebrate that, that this is happening. That Jesus says, these are my treasures that I'm going to steal back to myself. And one day at the end of time in Revelation 20, it says that the devil himself will be thrown into the lake of fire. So that the devil and death itself will be no more. But it's not yet. Satan hasn't been fully terminated. And so like the dog on the leash, he's thrashing, he's trying to destroy whatever he can in the meantime. And so what does this mean for us? I've given you three views. Let me give you one takeaway. If all of this is true, that we are living in the end times, y'all wake up to this, that, that we are in the end times right now. It's truly the end of the world as we know it. We are in the era of the end. And so if, if we actually consider that we're in the last days, like this is why Christ said that you don't know the hour when it's going to happen because it could happen in the blink of an eye. It can happen any time. He will come like a thief in the night. There's this great C.S. Lewis quote when he, he, was, he was writing his book, The, the Screwtape Letters. Such a, such a good book. And it's about Satan trying to count these demons counseling how to, how, to, how to take over God's kingdom. And in this, this portion, Satan and his minions are having a planning strategy for attacking the world uh, and hearing the message of salvation. And one of the demons says, I've got the plan, master. Let's tell them there's no heaven. And he's like, no, that, that will do no good. There's the, Jesus talked too much about heaven for, us, for the Christians to really believe that. They, they, they know of the hope that's before them. And then another, another minion said, I know what we'll do. Let's tell them there's no hell. And then Satan says, no, that won't do either. Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven. Like they, they know that, that so, something has to pay for, for the, the evil that's here on this earth. And then one little minion steps forward. And he says, this is a conniving, conniving minion. And he says, then I know the answer. I'll just tell them there's no hurry. I'll just tell them there's no hurry, and that's the one that Satan chose. That there's no rush. There's no hurry. Who knows when Christ will come back? If, if he's going to come back in 25 years, you got time. If he's going to come back in 100 years, we got time. We just believe what the, the, the demons are telling us, that it, there's no rush. I've got to the end of my life. I'll, I'll live till I'm 80 or 90 or whatever. I, I'm fine. There's no hurry. There's no hurry in, in our Christianity. Like, the king is going to come and he's going to ride on his horse to make war on the devil. And so I think it's time for us to all wake up to this truth. So this, this one takeaway to, to this truth is Christ is going to come back and he's coming back soon. 
Like, we are living in the last days. We can all agree to that. Regardless of your view of the end time, the orthodox truth, the foundational truth to treasure is Christ is coming back. Amen? And that's the great news. Well, depending on who you are, it's great news, though. This could be fantastic news if you're a Christian suffering, but if you're not a Christian, if you've not put your hope and faith in him, this is terrible news. You don't want him to come back right now because you're not ready. How fearful would that be? Because if Christ is going to come back today for someone who doesn't know Jesus, who has rejected Jesus, or who believed those demons that there is no hurry, what awaits us? Verse 12 of of chapter 20 tells us, and he says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in these books according to what they had done. And so every thought, every action, every, every motivation you have is now written in a book that you are now to be judged by. Think how long that book has to be. To just think of, even when you did the good thing, the motivation behind it. And the things that you thought no one knew is now written to be judged by. Your eternity judged on what is written in these books. And in verse 15 it says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so if you don't know Jesus, there is an urgency to Revelation 20. There is an urgency to this call to to wake up because you may never have another chance. I know we like to make plans. We like to say, I have a five-year plan. I have a 10-year plan. But what if he comes back tonight? Are we ready for that? Like, are we ready for that? Are you ready to be judged by the details of what you've done and what you've not done? When you stand before the judge, you will live by that book of the details of what you've done. Or will you live by another book that's called the book of life? that has your name written in it, etched in it, because of what Jesus has done. Which one are we going to put our hope and faith in, what I've done or what Jesus has done? Have you put your hope and faith in Jesus? Is your name written in that book? I just say, don't wait, don't wait, don't wait. Pray with me after the service today. We, he really could come back today. Do we believe that? We just affirm and say, like, we know it could be any time. Could it be today? Absolutely. He could come back today. And for those of us who who are starting to sense this urgency, what about our loved ones? Do we feel the urgency to pray for their souls? What about for our neighbors? Do we we feel that urgency to, to win them over with weapons of compassion and kindness? To pray for them, to, to yearn for them, to, to know Jesus. He's coming back soon. And so first, Christ is coming back soon. And for those that don't know Jesus, that should energize our urgency. But that's one takeaway. I told you there's only one takeaway. It depends on who, which, which person you are. If that's who you are, that's your one takeaway, that urgency. But if, the second, if you are a Christian and you've been un, you know that your, your book is written in the, in, the, in the book of life so that nothing Satan or anyone else can say or do can harm you because you are now invincible. Because your name is written in there because of what Jesus has done for you. He lived, he died, he raised, and he's etched your name in that book of life. And yet we're still living in this earth. And if your name is in that book and you, and you are suffering, I just want to say, saints, this book is written for you. 
The book of Revelation is written to Christians who are suffering. There is an end to your pain. And that's the main theme of the, vic- of the book of Revelation, the victory of Christ and his church over every enemy. <laughs> it, is, it is such good news. When Satan is, is hurled, hurled into the lake of fire, there's not a single enemy left to vex Christians. That all of the enemies go away, even death itself. Like we are conquerors, indeed we are more than conquerors, is what the scripture tells us. We are more than conquerors. And so I just want to end this in honor of T.J. Webb and his last Sunday. I'll give you one more G.K. Chesterton quote, <laughs> since I know he loves him so much. Fairy tales, exist, uh, fairy tales do not tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. We know the darkness of the world. We know dragons exist. But what hope do we have that that, that, that evil and the dragons can be killed? And I want to say that this is a tale. It's not a fairy tale. This is a tale that is just so true, it almost feels too good to be true. That the devil himself will be killed. That your pain will not go on forever. That evil will ultimately be squelched. That the people you cry over and the tensions you're having in relationships, it will not always be this way. There is going to be an end to all of this. And so it's going to be punished and there will be joy. And so one of the beautiful things about the book of Revelation in this time, this eschatology, is it it gives boundaries to our grief. It gives bumpers to our grief so that we know that, yes, this this is painful. We're not ignoring that, but it's not forever. There is an end to it. There is hope coming. And so I just want to encourage you this morning that there is hope, and there is hope coming, and it's coming very soon. Let's pray.